Okay, we are recording. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Double Down WNBA podcast. My name is Eric Nemchak. His name is Stephen Trinkwald. We are continuing our 2022 WNBA season outlooks uh, with the defending champion, Chicago Sky. Still feels weird to say that. That's right. The Chicago Sky, they went 16-16 and 16 in the regular season, a little peculiar for an eventual WNBA champion. They were the sixth seed in the playoffs, as well as sixth in net rating. They were a positive 1.5 net rating, only seventh in offense, 109, I'm sorry, 100.9 offensive rating, sixth in defense at 99.4 throughout the regular season. And then, of course, they defeated the seventh seed Dallas Wings at home in the single elimination first round, defeated the third seed Minnesota Lynx in Minnesota in another single elimination round before upsetting the number one seed Connecticut Sun in four games in the semifinals and eventually defeating the Phoenix Mercury in four games to win the franchise's first WNBA title on their home floor. Uh, Quite a season, Eric. Quite a season, quite a season. Uh, a very up and down season. You know, I think this team had a lot of hype coming into the uh, 2021 season, deservedly so. Um, bringing Candace Parker home, uh, and ideally, you know, add, just adding on to this um, this this core that w- that seemed competitive the previous couple seasons, but kind of lacked that extra star player. And it seemed like Candace Parker would be it, that player to put them over the top and, and bring home that title. Uh, and for a while in the regular season, it was not so great um they had that lengthy seven game losing streak uh to not not to open the season but but shortly after the season started but but essentially to open the season pretty much yeah you know they started two and seven and then uh because of lots of injuries and other absences and then they went on a seven game winning streak when candace parker returned from injury along with ellie quigley and stephanie dolson and then after that they just kind of like treaded water they ended up being 60 and 16. the interesting thing about that that 60 and 16 regular season record was you know, if you look at the um, the net rating and the offensive rating, the defensive rating, like that record checks out. It, it was they were a good team, but not like a great team. Um, they had some pretty bad losses down the stretch there, uh, but of course, then they, then they absolutely caught fire during the postseason, and uh, and really they really earned that title. Was there anything that jumped out to you in terms of like why this team failed to click in the regular season? You know, obviously the lineup was was a huge part of it. They had a ton of injuries. They missed. Candace Parker, you know, they they won two thirds of their games with Candace Parker in the lineup. Uh, they were fifteen and eight when CP played, and but even still, winning two thirds of your games that that's usually more kind of commensurate to the WNBA runner up as opposed to kind of the powerhouse that eventually wins the finals. Right. So so not even really the kind of uh, the best of the best uh, elite that you would typically see from like a finals winner. Um, they missed Steph Dolson for a period of time. They missed Ellie Quigley for a bunch of games. Um, but outside of that, like, w- was there anything that kind of really st- stood out to you in terms of why this team just did not click in the ways that we expected them to? I mean, when you put it that way, I think... I think it is fair to blame injuries and absences. It just took them a very long time to really establish cohesion. Um, I mean, even so, though, like they, even when they were healthy, they didn't really look like consistently the best team in the WNBA. You know, they had that seven-game win streak, but I mean, they played New York twice, Indiana Fever twice, Connecticut twice without John Cole Jones. Um, so I mean, I'm not, I'm not like kind of trying to diminish their their success there, but it's it's understandable how they would um, how they would had that winning streak. Uh, and then, like I said, they had some bad losses against contending teams afterwards. You know, they, they lost to the aces twice, uh, both by double digits. Uh, they lost to the sun without John Cole Jones. They lost to Minnesota. Like these are teams that you figured 
the sky would have to beat heading into the playoffs. And then they were 10th in the league in defensive rebounding rate. Uh, it's not like concern, you know, I think that was something we were concerned about with this team heading into the uh, regular season was that they just didn't have a ton of rebounding. Um, and when you stack that up against, you know, some of the best teams in the league, Connecticut, maybe Phoenix, Minnesota, the Aces, they all have very strong front courts. So I don't think any concerns were unfounded regarding, you know, the Sky's play against these massive front lines. Of course, they proved those concerns wrong in, in the in the postseason, but it just seemed like they didn't really have that, uh, how do I want to put this? And they just weren't a good rebounding team. And it was biting them in the behind. Uh, in fact, I think both of those losses against Washington, um, Tina Charles just, I think James Wade said she came in here and she did whatever she wanted um, on on the uh, on the glass. That was another bad matchup for this guy during the regular season. So I don't know. I think um, this is something you want to talk about later. But they're also uh, running a little bit of a longer rotation out there during the regular season, whereas in the playoffs they shortened things up considerably and really um, they stayed with their best players. You know, a, a novel idea, of course, right? But uh, players like Azari Stevens and uh, Stephanie Dolson maybe a little bit really stepped up during the postseason where they were somewhat limited in the regular season. And, and the Sky's up and down levels of success really reflected in that. And I think one of the interesting things about how this team caught fire in the postseason where they were just, you know, pretty unstoppable on both ends is that, you know, you, you'd mentioned the kind of the big storylines of like the seven game losing streak and then the seven game winning streak. But then, you know, they, they finished the season seven and nine to, to kind of end the regular season. It's not like this team was like building this massive momentum heading into the, the playoffs. So, you know, the, the kind of uh, archetype of, of a lower seed kind of making a run in the playoffs is, is getting hot at the right time. And typically that, that sort of manifests itself like as the regular season is coming to a conclusion. But that wasn't really the case with this guy. They struggled mightily uh, towards the tail end of the regular season. Yeah, they did it the hard way. Um, there were no first-round buys, no double buys. Uh, they they did it the hard way. They they really earned that championship. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you completely. Uh, going back to the time, you know, it's easy to look back and say, yeah, the Sky are the world champions. You know, we knew it was going to happen all along, but we didn't. You know, I was not particularly optimistic as a fan heading into the postseason. Like, yeah, that seven-game win streak was cool, but this team had clear deficiencies in the regular season. And like you said, kind of limped into the postseason like they were they did not finish strong i was pretty disappointed that they couldn't at least get like a first round bye but um you know i i kind of wonder now looking back on it if you know that that extra um those those extra games in the postseason kind of helped them stay sharp i don't know it's that it's that rest versus rush thing obviously there are great advantages to having a double bye and, and being fully rested but there's also the thing like if, if you're not if you're a team that is looking for consistency and is looking for cohesion like the Sky were, I mean, using that opening round game against Dallas to really get a warm up, if you will, you know, I mean, the Sky might look back on that and say, yeah, that was that was beneficial to us. But yeah, um, to kind of land the plane here, it was uh, up and down regular season that uh, just totally turned around at the right time. So yeah, world champion Chicago Sky. And I think in the regular season, let me know if you uh, disagree with this, Eric, but I think James Wade, uh, who I think is a, is a really great coach. I think he tried to maybe have it uh, both ways a, a little bit in terms of like pushing to compete now and kind of maximizing this window. And of course, you know, trading Gabby Williams because she would be late because he wanted everybody right. who's going to be a contributor to, you know, be part of camp and be there on time, but also, you know, trying not to overextend some of his very important players. Uh, Allie Quigley with some low minute games in, in the early games, 
that she was available. Azura Stevens, of course, on a pretty rigid minutes restriction over the course of the regular season and got two two DNP CDs, essentially, or, or DNP, uh, you know, rest recovery f- over the offseason for the injury that she was working on. She didn't play the first two games in total. And then, of course, you know, never played 30 minutes of, over the course of the regular season, as we've noted many times. So um, I think, you know, Wade Wade was trying to, to maybe walk that line a little bit over the course of the regular season. Would you agree with that? Definitely agree with that. Um, and I'd be remiss if I did not uh, mention the uh, <laughs> the kind of weird uh, series of transact- transactions that this guy made um, during that early portion of the regular season. You know, they uh, they gave up on their first round draft pick, Shiley Heal, very quickly, um, and kind of brought in the player that maybe you could say they should have drafted, and Dana Evans in exchange for her. Uh, they traded Gabby Williams because she wasn't going to show up on time. And to be clear, like that, that was a move that I don't think it was any fault of of either parties. It was just like, hey, this guy had this championship window; they needed to maximize it. Um, but, you know, they traded her for Stephanie Watts, who I think didn't really show much uh, of WNBA caliber play in her short stint in Chicago. And then they made several, <laughs> several very, uh, very strange signings and wavings of players just to bring Lexi Brown back from her, uh, her previous training camp contract, only to not really have her in the rotation later on in the season anyway. So yeah, some, some very weird, uh, salary cap gymnastics there, but I think you're right in that, um, Quigley's and Stevens' statuses were a factor. I think, you know, we, we both love Azari Stevens in, in 2020, what she brought to the team, but I think it's pretty clear now that she's not like a, a 30 to 32 minute per game player at this point in her career. She just had too many injuries in her lower body, which really stinks, but we, we, yeah, we saw... From an effectiveness standpoint, she probably could be, but just, you know, kind of keeping keeping her healthy over the course of, you know, a long season. Right, right. And, and we did see in the postseason we did see James Wade in the sky reaping those rewards. You know, I mean, keep Stevens fresh, try and keep her on this minutes restriction. Um, regular season losses be damned. And, um, and then find, and then find out like what good, how good of a two way player as Stevens really is when you need her the most against these bigger front lines. So the big difference, I think, you know, between this regular season team, which was kind of middling and the playoff version of them, which was, uh, extremely good on both ends. You know, I think it starts with like what you were saying, playing their their best players more and minimizing Diamond DeShields in a lot of ways. Um, DeShields last season, 43% effective field goal percentage. That was the worst of any of their rotation players, 34th percentile league-wide. So essentially in the bottom third of all players, she played 26 minutes a game in the regular season, and that went all the way down to 15 minutes per game in the playoffs and, and even that 15 minutes per game in the playoffs number was driven up by that game three blowout in the finals one of two games all playoffs where she hit 20 minutes so and in that limited role you know she she struggled in that role as well 37 percent effective field goal percentage you know she was 15 for 41 from two three for 12 from three over the course of the playoffs there so so i do think that you know addition by subtraction when you are taking the 11 minute difference from Diamond DeShield's uh, regular season contribution to the playoff contribution and replacing those minutes with extra Allie Quigley and extra Kalea Copper minutes, uh, mostly Quigley, who saw an eight-minute increase from the regular season to the playoffs, but Kalea Copper saw an increase in minutes as well. Like Those players are just vastly superior offensive players to to the ver- this version of Diamond DeShield's that the Sky were, was getting last year. Yeah, definitely agree on that. It was a disappointing season for DeShield's, to be sure. Uh, we figured that maybe she'd come back healthy after that 
that kind of weird 2020 campaign when she was clearly not right and then left the season halfway through. Um, she, she just never really got it going. You know, uh, the transition play is one thing, yeah, but when she, she was just so ineffective in the half court, whether it be, you know, not even creating her own shot really, but not having any off-ball gravity whatsoever, you know, really struggling to hit jump shots consistently, turn it over, I think, I think more than I would have liked her to. And then just like the redundancy between her and Kalia Copper, you know, Copper, obviously, this is a season when she continued that, uh, that career explosion that she uh first enjoyed in the in the bubble in 2020 but when the sky had both the shields and copper on the floor the floor spacing was just really really bad and you also didn't have enough playmaking i don't think you know you had two two kind of slasher types two really athletic slasher type offensive wings who you know didn't really maximize each other's talents and when push came to shove it was obviously copper who who took that role and who took those minutes and did the most with it. And DeShields was kind of left left in no man's land because, as you said, you replace her with an elite-level shooter in Allie Quigley who does maximize other players and, you know, whose, whose own talents are maximized by her other players. Uh, and like you said, addition by subtraction. It's, it's harsh to put it that way, but I think it is true. I mean, you mentioned the transition. Diamond DeShields, you, you think of her as one of the, the elite transition players. But, I mean, the best teams in the league, the teams that get out in transition the most in the league, Chicago Sky was up there. They were 16.7% of their possessions in transition. So the absolute like most you're going to get, you're still playing in the half court 83% of the time on, on offense. So there really is, you know, as much as we talk about how good offenses get out in transition a lot and it's always going to be more efficient, there's still a ceiling to the volume volume that you can get in that that type of game um so you have to be able to still be an effective half court player but what is it about Ali Quigley in particular that that's so important to this team they 13 points worse per 100 possessions on offense when Ali Quigley was on the bench they had 106.5 offensive rating with her on 93 offensive rating with her off and even you know with the other kind of stars of this team Candace Parker Courtney Vandersloot Kalea Copper playing with Quigley those three playing with Quigley 103.8 offensive rating, 9.2 net rating in just about 240 minutes. Those same three with Diamond to Shields, 93 offensive rating, negative 3.5 net rating in about 240 minutes. So almost equal minutes. There was a four minute difference between those lineups. And you see just like the vast difference in kind of what those two, you know, lineup combinations present to each other. And I think a lot of it is kind of what you were saying you know, the redundancy because Kalea Copper uh, and Diamond to Shields, there is a large skill overlap in terms of, you know, being more kind of slashers than shooters and neither being, you know, the best in terms of kind of creating for others. They're more kind of uh, play finishers and self-creators a little bit more. And then, of course, there, there's like the shooting gravity. And you had brought up like a, uh, a few times a potential Sammy Wickham, Steph Dolson off-ball dynamic in New York, similar to what Quigley and Dolson have but even Wickham I don't think has like the jump shot versatility to just launch off of movement the way Quigley can like she it's it's really in my opinion like her Tolliver and Kayla McBride that are like the three players kind of in the same neighborhoods in terms of how effective they can be just shifting defenses and their ability to be able to be effective like catching and shooting on like off ball screens and and you know bending the defense kind of away from the ball if that makes sense. Bending the defense. I really like that term because Ellie Quigley is, in my opinion, second to none when it comes to moving without the basketball. And that's not just coming off of like your typical pin down screens. Like she works the baseline really well. She she makes cuts 
depending on what the defense is um, depending on what the defense is doing like she's really good at setting up her de- her defenders off the ball you know she's great at relocating relocating absolutely um obviously never stops moving she's in excellent condition excellent excellent condition so she really is the complete package when it comes to shooting and that's that's what separates Ellie Quigley from your typical shooter you know it, it's one thing to to park somebody in the corner and have them shoot 40 45 percent from three but to be constantly like you said relocating and bending defenses like you got to have eyes on Ellie Quigley at all times when she doesn't have the basketball and that's that's a really valuable thing to have when you look at someone like Diamond to Shields that's just not something she commands from opposing defenses whereas Ellie Quigley obviously you mentioned all the time her her chemistry with Stephanie Dolson with those off-ball screens um, and then I think another thing is, you know, Ellie Quigley, she's not bad with the basketball in her hands when it comes to creating shots. You know, she's not, she's obviously not going to be a, a driving and dishing type of player, but this is something I wanted to, uh, to mention. It's an important point to be made about ball handling versus playmaking. Obviously no one would call Ellie Quigley a point guard. You know, this guy have tried that experiment in the past. It did not work. Um, you know, it, it, she's just not a, a, a very good ball handler. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I think she's, pretty decent at you know whenever she has the ball in her hands in the half court just just making a decision sometimes she doesn't she's obviously not going to get to the rim with blazing speeds or whatever but she's got enough balance and enough patience with the basketball to use a ball screen and to at least have something good come out of it you know so just like the secondary playmaking there and that's another thing that you really didn't see from the shields uh patience with the ball good decision making and of course if it's if it's there an open three-point shot yeah, and you really do need, you know, even with Candace Parker being an exceptional passer, you know, for any position, never mind a big, but you, you still need kind of multiple perimeter players who can create for others a little bit. Like, yeah, you're definitely Allie Quigley is maybe not the player that you want, you know, running pick and roll six times in a row to, to end the game, um, but she can do it a little bit. You know, she can run a second side pick and roll for sure. And, you know, even for all of Kalea Copper's gifts, she she's a play finisher, an elite play finisher. She had 9% assist percentage. So, you know, her teammates' baskets, when Kalea Copper was on the, the court, Kalea Copper was assisting 9% of those. So it's a pretty low number for in terms of like, you know, the tier of player you would put Kalea Copper in. She's not really looking to kind of use the advantage that she is creating to create an advantage for someone else. And Quigley's numbers, they were not amazing out of the pick and roll last year, but, you know, 41st percentile overall when you include assists. And, and I think that's a pretty kind of low number even compared to some of her other seasons. But even, you, you know, you look at Kalea Copper, 30th percentile, 14th percentile for Diamond to Shields. So it's a marked improvement kind of from from what they were getting from the other ball handling positions. And I just don't think, you know, the difference in defense between Allie Quigley and Diamond to Shields is as important as the difference in offense. That's right there what you just said. That's that's a great way of putting it. Um, I think to Shields, when she's locked in, she has the capability to be a pretty, pretty good on-ball defender. And of course, she does has have the capability, the the length, the athleticism off the ball. But we have become accustomed to seeing just so many off ball lapses from her defensively that you're right. I mean, th- this team is clearly much, much, much better in the half court with Quigley on the floor than the Shields. And of course, when you're kind of basically guaranteeing Copper on the floor as well at all times, it's it's no difficult decision there. I think the other kind of major lineup adjustment that really propelled this team forward is more Azar Stevens. She played less than 20 minutes per game in the regular season, uh, you know, by design, to be sure, as we talked about a little earlier, coming off two injury-plagued seasons. Um, I think there was maybe a little bit of concern when she got those kind of two early season DNPs in the first two games, but she hit 
you know, 25 minutes, seven times in 30 games in the regular season, and then five times in 10 games in the playoffs. So when push came to shove, I guess, Azra Stevens was uh, seeing an, a huge increase in playoff minutes. And that increase came largely at the expense of Ruthie Hebert and Astu Dufall, players who Azra Stevens is, is frankly better than on both ends, I think. Yep. Y- yeah, she doesn't have the efficiency that Ruthie Hebert has in the pick and roll like Hebert is I mean she she's a, an elite pick and roll player you know even given like the rest of her limitations in her size but but you have to be involved in the play to drive efficiency in the pick and roll whereas Stevens despite not really shooting it very well in the playoffs can just kind of park herself behind the three-point line and occupy the attention and the gravity of a defender and that's just more valuable than Ruthie Hebert kind of you know standing in the dunker spot or a stew not being guarded behind the line and you know she's not only like a, a better and, and more respected shooter than a Stu Dufall, but also like a much better two-point finisher. You know, a Stu is maybe not, they're, they're not kind of night and day defensively. Like a Stu is, I think, a decent defender, but, you know, 46% shooting for a Stu Dufall for a center is just, that that is very poor for that position. It's, and, I think I think with Stevens, you get the ability to attack a closeout. Yeah, sure. And and I think her actual shooting is is better as well. Like you know, you have to just respect that shot a little bit more. And you know, Astu had a great rebounding season, but otherwise, I don't think Astu Dufall is going to be able to do to Jonquel Jones what Azra Stevens did to Jonquel in the playoffs. Like she doesn't just have that type of length. She probably has a stronger base a little bit, but she just doesn't have the the length to contest that. And uh, Azra Stevens, she she's just you know her size really works to her advantage. She contest vertically very well um and you know i think that's that's a big difference between those two when you think about Ezra stevens and the job she did in the postseason it was almost kind of a kind of a thankless job because you didn't often see candace i mean yeah candace parker got the main assignment on those uh dominant centers sometimes but oftentimes it was stevens guarding Brittany grinder or it was stevens guarding john quilla jones and Yes, there were plenty of times when Griner just shot over Ezra Stevens or, or, or got a layup over Ezra Stevens. That's going to happen. You know, it's it's not when you're guarding those elite low post players, the measure of your performance isn't going to be just how many points they scored over you. Like it's it's going to happen. But just making it difficult, um, doing your work before the catch, all, all these all these cliches you hear on, on basketball broadcasts, it's, they, they really are true. You know, but, but I think, what what does it also allow the other defenders to do? You know what I right, mean? Right, right. And this is something you mentioned all the time. Candace Parker, it kind of freed up Candace Parker to use her basketball IQ and her her activity on defense to kind of roam and to create plays off of the basketball. And in and in tandems, Parker and Stevens were a terrific defensive combination in, in in that regard. So, yeah, I mean, going back to going back to your point about Wade kind of saving Stevens, kind of putting her on that minutes limit, it really really paid off in that respect. And the other thing is, it's not just, you know, that Stevens can shoot better than a stew. So the the percentage is going to be a a higher percentage or Allie Quigley has a higher percentage than Diamond to Shields. Like these players being on the court, it opened things up for players like Kalea Copper to have more space to do what the things that Kalea Copper wants to do. Like Copper was, you know, 50% shooting from two in the regular season, which is is very good for a wing. But that went all the way up to 57% from two in the playoffs because... You know, it's hard to imagine a wing shooting 57% from two if, you know, Ruthie Heber's defender is guarding in the paint because she's standing in the dunker spot or if Diamond to Shield's defender is just sagging off her, you know, for 80 possessions a game or something like that. So 
Copper's already impressive numbers getting to the rim, you know, 48% of her shots came in the restricted area in the regular season. That number shot all the way up to 61% of her shots coming uh, in the restricted area in the playoffs. And you just have to attribute at least a portion of that to just better spacing because there are more respected shooters around her for, for a higher proportion of her minutes. Yeah, it's about it's about your complementary players maximizing the talents of your of your star players and, and vice versa too. You know, um, but yeah, yeah, that's 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 a great point. That's that's a great point for sure. One other thing I just wanted to mention about kind of what made the sky not I shouldn't say what made the sky successful in the playoffs, but one thing that I thought was interesting about the sky's playoff success is that you know they they were facing this awesome defense in the Connecticut Sun and you know Jasmine Thomas I think for all of her gifts like she is just a much better defensive player against kind of like the bigger type of ball handler you know an Enrique Gumbawale a Chelsea Gray I think she can she can pretty much take those players out of games a lot of times but the the quicker point guards you know Courtney Vandersloot you think of D Rob in the 2020 playoffs those are not the ideal matchups like Jasmine Thomas does I think have a little bit more trouble with those players than kind of, you know, the bigger uh, kind of ball handlers that, that I mentioned before. Well, the other thing that the Bandersuit has that those players don't is, you know, she's, when she, when she dribble penetrates, she's not automatically looking to go up with it. Um, she's really, really good at keeping her dribble alive. And she's not, she's not predictable. We you know when she gets below the free throw line, I, I feel like Ariki Gunbuale, you know, you can pretty much most, most of the time just kind of load up Load up for the shot against Enrique, and with Chelsea Gray, obviously, you know, like you mentioned all the time, she's she's more she almost operates like a small forward. Um, but you're right. I mean, Vandersloot does have that little bit of sneaky explosion. You know, she's not the quickest player, but she's sneaky about it. And uh, you know, it's interesting. She was actually dealing with a, a foot injury. I'm not sure for how long uh, in the playoffs there, but she she was actually wearing a boot during the, during the parade, uh, and she had some. She took some time off this 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 past off season to to kind of get that taken care of. But yeah, you know, you're right. I think that is an instance of Vandersloot's own offense, maybe kind of being a little underrated. She didn't have the strongest offensive season by her own standards, but she, she certainly is a threat to do, to create plays both for others and herself. And and yeah, that is a great example for sure. Anything else you wanted to hit on about the 2021 sky before we kind of look forward? No, let's look forward. Uh, this 2022 team shaping up to be a really, really exciting one. You want to take us through these uh, these transactions they made? Sure. So they lost uh, Diamond to Shields to the Phoenix Mercury. They lost Stephanie Dolson to the New York Liberty. Uh, Astu Dufall is just going to be sitting out the WNBA season to take care of her body, which we, of course, always support when a player makes that choice. Um, but they are bringing in a couple exciting players, Emma Miesemann, and Julie Aleman, and they also signed a slew of training camp contracts to kind of compete for those last two spots, one of which we uh, we thought would be occupied by Crystal Bradford, who, of course, it's since been reporting, is still dealing with an injury, won't make it back in time for the regular season, so the Sky decided they, they needed to move on and you know bring in someone that would be able to kind of contribute right away, which is, is too bad. I think we both really, really loved the fit for Bradford there, but... Yeah, it stinks. Um, so... You know, with these last two spots here uh, for the, their training cap, we're, we're looking at Kamaya Smalls, Kaiser Gondrzic, Rebecca Gardner, Tina Kreisnik, Annalie Maley, Kayla Davis, and Amani McGee-Stafford. So uh, nice to see McGee-Stafford competing for a spot back in the league after taking a couple of years off to get her JD. Where, where do you want to start with kind of the, the new team here? Well, I mean, obviously, I think you need to start with Misuman and Alamond. They're two biggest and most Belgian acquisitions. Um, so I'm really, really excited about this. I, I'm not sure if I can really contain my excitement on air here. Um, this, I think, is going to make the sky 
significantly better offensively and maybe a little worse defensively, but not horribly so. You know, I, I said this in previous episodes, kind of kind of generalizing for a second here. I think James Wade did a terrific job this offseason of bringing back the players who were the most important to bring back while bolstering them with, you know, let, let's, let's be honest here, championship-level talent. I mean, this team is still in a position to win another championship despite losing some pretty significant players in in free agency there and uh and that's I mean, that's there, a great there was that, just no way to expect that the sky were going to be able to get two players of this caliber no like, never mind one of Alamon or Misa. I mean, you thought you know hopefully they bring back their three big free agents which they were able to do maybe if everyone kind of takes a little bit of a haircut you can bring back one of Dolson or Diamond but no way you thought an outside player of stature was going to be able to be added to this core let alone two of them um julia almond at in particular you know she's still on um her rookie seal contract and is cheaper than a 2022 draft pick would have been um and, and she in particular you know i mean acquiring her in exchange for uh, a, a pick this season i mean she's 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 pretty much going to be better for them than a 2022 draft pick would have been i'm, I'm fairly confident in saying that uh, and she also sets them up for the future. You know, she's what, 25, 26 years old. So in in the post Vandersloot era, you know, if whether it happens or not, you know, you, you got to have to look at least somewhere down the line. You know, you're not going fully scorched earth here in, in regards to going all in for a championship and then being horrible the next season. You know, you actually got some some players who can contribute both now and later. Um, but yeah, obviously we're going to be looking towards the 2022 season right now. And it's it's hard for me to imagine a scenario in which you have at least better offensive composition than, than this roster. The other thing is that, you know, one thing that this Sky team has just struggled with for as long as I think both of us can remember is even, I mean, unless you just like really surround those two players, Alaman and Misamin, with, you know, absolute zero shooting uh, in, in offensive skill, like you have an anchor for a second unit offense already that should be pretty good. Just having those two players kind of eating up those minutes that, you know, Vandersloot and Quigley or Vandersloot and Copper or Parker, you know, all those players getting a little bit of rest. You have kind of a theory of 40 minutes of good offense already. For sure. And if you look at what, what, what were we just talking about in the first half of this show? You know, Diamond and Shields didn't really complement the starting unit that well. Astu Dufal didn't really complement the starting unit that well. You know, they were both players who were ignored from beyond the three-point line. You're not ignoring Julia Alwan from beyond the three-point line. You are not ignoring Emma Miesman from beyond the three-point line. This team, like I said, this team is set up to shoot a lot of threes and to score a ton of points in the half court. And, you know, like we said, and there's not going to need to be any uh, anymore, okay, we need to force Ellie Quigley to play 36 minutes this game because we really, really need it. No, no. You have very, very, very capable shooters in both the backcourt and the frontcourt now. So I guess my question to you is, let's say it's a closing five of Vandersloot, Quigley, Kalea Copper, Emma Miesemann, and Candace Parker. Yeah. Is that, do you have enough defense to really kind of, you know, close games against the best teams in the league with that lineup? Or, you know, maybe there's not enough defense and, and the offense is just so elite that it, it doesn't matter, which we've seen it over, the, you know, some teams in, in league history here. You know, transcendent offense, I think, just uh, outweighs transcendent defense. Um, but but do you think that lineup will be able to defend at all with essentially, you know, two good defenders? Well, do you think Emma Mieseman can play the Azari Stevens role and, and kind of take the main defensive front court assignment? I, I don't. No. Honestly, I, I don't think she has the physical tools to do that. Um, I think it's going to be situational. 
and this is a good problem to have though you know because like because you can keep azari stevens on kind of the the 24 to 26 minute per game limit during the regular season and not really have to worry about just like setting the rest of those minutes on fire anymore because you do have another front court player who can really make opposing defenses need to adjust in, in those minutes that she's on the floor but we've seen james wade in the past kind of play matchups in closing minutes we, we've seen him bench ellie quigley for defensive purposes uh, later in the game uh, so i don't see why he would um, need to keep Emma Miesman on the floor at all times in, in, in favor of Ezra Stevens if he's feeling like, you know, the defense is going to be compromised. What do you think? Yeah, I do have to say, I am a little bit concerned about kind of what that closing defense, you know, once we get, I'm sure in the regular season, like, I, I don't really think it'll be too much of an issue. But when you just get against the best defenses, you know, who have done a ton of scouting and kind of know the weaknesses of, of Quigley and Miesman and stuff like that. You know, I'm, you know, you, you bring up the, the potential defensive, uh, defensive shortcomings of, of Miesman, I'm actually more concerned about the perimeter defense as a Sky fan. But yeah, um, but when you have Stevens and Parker like on the back line, you're, you can kind of feel a little bit better about getting blown by than if it's, right. if it's Emma Miesman. Right. So, so do you play Stevens at the three or, or, or what do you do? I, I don't think you can really play Stevens. I, I just don't think you'll have enough offense there, even with Miesman and Parker and, and nominally enough spacing, but also, you know, when you're playing against the best teams, you probably have a three that can blow by, you know, a big, uh, and, and can't really kind of contain that matchup. So um, I do think their returning kind of perimeter of Vandersloot, Quigley, and Copper, if healthy, like those players are shoo-ins, I think, to, to close every game, Parker, sure. obviously. So I do think it'll be a little bit situational, but I also think, you know, there's a pretty good chance that it might not matter, and, and the offense is just going to be so good that you kind of live with being a slightly above-average defense maybe or a slightly below-average defense because nobody can stop you. Well, we will uh, find out. What do you think about these these training camp contracts? So they pretty much need two of, of the players that I laid out before. Does anybody jump out as like a, a sure thing, a shoe in for kind of one of these spots? Because when you look at the roster, you know, they have three point guards, essentially, in Alamon and Dana Evans. Both of, you know, Alamon and Evans, I think, can, can play pretty well off the ball. So you can maybe slot one of those in at the backup two also, you know, just in bench minutes. Wouldn't, right. wouldn't hate kind of, you know, two point guard lineups against bench lineups you know I, th- I think that's pretty good you have Stevens you have Ruthie Hebert who I definitely want to talk about later so the the big thing that jumps out to me is um you know maybe another definitely another wing ideally another player that can play the the three um but you know if if it were me I'd probably be looking at two players that can play you know at least one of those wing positions see and this is what really is is a, is a real bummer about that Crystal Bradford injury because she was the ideal backup small forward, right? And she she was also fitting in in that slightly above zero to two year veteran minimum uh, salary, but she was making you know a, a figure that would allow this guy to roster another um, three year veteran, I believe. I'm, I'm probably I might be misinterpreting that, but basically she was the perfect combination of of both uh, fit and salary, and that is now um, that is now bumped. So. Let's see here. Two of the training camp contracts. I think, you know, well, the first thing we need to consider is that it's likely that Alamund is going to miss at least like the first week, I believe, of the regular season because she's overplaying in France for, I believe, uh, Lyon. And uh, yeah, I mean, she's she's not going to be there. So and also the problem is Dana Evans. I don't believe you're going to be able to keep Dana Evans plus a three year veteran on the roster. It's pretty much Evans or one of. Kayla Davis and Amani McGee Stafford. 
Right. No, so, none of the other training camp contracts fall into... You can keep Evans and you can keep pretty much anybody else except for those two players. Right. So I can tell you right now, I am not very enthusiastic about Gondrasek. I'm not very enthusiastic about Doyle. Uh, so the backup point... I <laughs> forgot spot, to mention Kathleen Doyle. Well, there you go. <laughs> I kind of got your uh, your opinion on the subject there as well. Um, out of all those players, I, I like Kamaya Smalls, but can she play the three? Can she defend the three? You know she's got the outside jump shot, but... Can she play the three in some lineups? Because that's kind of what you need is, is size out there on the perimeter. Um, I would really love if, if the Kayla Davis signing worked out because she is one of those big guards. But, you know, that that remains to be seen. Um, Annalie Maley, that's kind of an interesting signing. Didn't know much about her. Um, Bobby Mummery insists that she is not a three. He says that she is a four. You, you watched some film. What, what do you think? I mean, offensively, she looks like a three, but the side, you know, I, I may be kind of kind of scarred from, from the Shiley Hill experience um, from WNBL uh, kind of uh, what I want to say here, WNBL levels of competition in Australia. I mean, it's good basketball, but the size is just not the same. I mean, when you see a player who's six foot one averaging that many rebounds a game, it's it's a question mark because it's like, well, she's obviously an undersized going to be an undersized four here. What is it about her game that, you know, that's why is she ever averaging so many rebounds on there? Is she just that much stronger than everyone? I don't think so. I mean, um, I, I think she is an A plus box out player. Okay. Um, may, maybe even a bit to her detriment. Like, I think she's a bit, she can be a bit of a space killer because she's so thirsty for the offensive rebound that she'll just stand right underneath the hoop, even when she's not involved in like, yeah, the like as a three, that's not really what you need, right? Yeah, that, right. Like, that's not first on your priority list. Um, so, yeah, you know it, it, the the front court. I'm not particularly concerned about, but it's the it's it's this it's the back court and the perimeter where I think this guy are gonna need to make a a concession or two. Yeah, I don't really think this team needs a fifth big. Uh, I mean, I think Amani McGee Stafford is probably just like a better player than some of the other players that were signed to training camp contracts. But I agree. I just you know I don't think the need is really there. I think you know you have 11 roster spots. I don't think you need five five bigs, quite frankly, especially when your bigs are as good as the ones that you have, and they're all pretty different. Like there's not a lot of kind of skill overlap between these these players. I, I guess what Amani McGee Stafford gives you is just a little bit more you know size to go up against the biggest players, but. You know, I mean, I, they proved last year that they don't really need that anyway. So, yeah, I agree with you. Um, so, I think Smalls, to me, should be kind of the favorite to make the first spot. Uh, I think, you know, it's hard to her her shooting. I think is in the WNBA. You know, has been so small of a sample that you, you know, you obviously have no idea. But um, courtesy to the uh, aforementioned Robert Mummery, but he also pointed out to me that um, she is shooting. 38% in 32 Polish games or games not in the Polish Cup for her team this year. Uh, 70 for 183. So pretty decent volume there and hitting it uh, at, at a very good clip as well. So, you know, she doesn't have the size necessarily, I don't think, for the three. But, like, this is your backup, you know, maybe your your third or fourth wing. You know, you're, you're playing against bench lineups. Like, how many bench small forwards are really going to kind of kill you with their size? Do you have any any thoughts on Rebecca Gardner? Honestly, not really. Um, the sky had her in training camp previously, so I think this is this is more of a familiarity thing. When there is a time crunch and when the season starts early like it is this season, you don't want to have fifteen new players all trying to learn the playbook at once. You know? I, I think I think Gardner, she she's a vet, she's thirty one years old. Like I said, she has familiarity with what this guy wanna do and, and most of this guy's players on their roster. 
she does have the size, so I could maybe see her coming in as as a backup two, backup three. But that would basically be the the only reason why I would choose her over someone like Smalls. What do you think? Yeah, I I'm not in love with Rebecca Gardner. She's not really a threat from deep, which I think they do kind of need from this last spot. I I do think she has good size and especially good length and, and pretty decent athleticism. But yeah, I think more of a player to just kind of you know. Uh, bust your butt in camp and, and kind of make you work hard and it's kind of the same thing for Maley I, I think you know I, I wanted to get back to her a little bit more you know not a great shooter at least statistically 31 and a half percent from three this season in the WNBL and she had a five for six from three games so removing that game 25 percent on 51 attempts so pretty low volume as well uh, and I think her kind of hitchy release is why I think, you know, her free throw shoot, shooting is pretty good and her two point jumpers go in okay, but she can't quite extend it all the way out to three as effectively. I, I just think there's a little bit, you know, inconsistencies down in the lower half of the shot and then the, the hitch with her release as well. Um, but defensively, I mean, I'd love to know kind of what you thought of her defensively because, you know, I saw her get roasted once pretty bad by Tiffany Mitchell, who you know, has elite athleticism, I think, for even a, the WNBA, never mind the uh, Australia's League. But other than that, like, other than that one time, I thought she really defended multi-positional, like, extremely well. Uh, you know, she was guarding Lindsay Allen for a while. I've seen, you know, saw her match up against Brittany Sykes a few times in a different game. She was guarding Ezzie Magbiger. Like, this team had no problems just switching her out one through five. And, you know, offensively, I think it, it might be a challenge. But I do think... You know, defensively, I, I don't see her having really any problems kind of hanging as a bench three in this league. Well, she's got the wingspan, and that's so important. Like, like we saw in the playoffs last last uh, postseason, you got to have the wingspan. It's obviously you, you want to play defense with your feet more than you do with your with your arms. But if you're able to kind of take away those 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 passing lanes and just make the ball handler uncomfortable, it, it does add that switchability, as you like to say. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if if you're if you're I guess it just depends on what you want from this backup three. Again, like going back to Bradford, she just would have been a perfect fit on both ends of the court. But obviously, you can't really, you you, you can't really consider. You got you got you kind of have to play either or now with any of these potential uh, roster spots. So, one thing, did, did you have anything else to add on Maley? Because I, I had a note here from uh, from Richard Cohen about a potential scenario for this guy here. Oh, go ahead. So I talked to him about this earlier today. Of course, Richard Cohen from her, her hoop stats. Uh, CBA expert, um, very, very helpful resource and, and knowledgeable guy. So they could keep both Dana Evans and either, you know, Kayla Davis or any Miki Stafford later on in the season if they keep a zero to two year vet like Gondrazek or Doyle or, or Smalls and then waive that player 10 days into the regular season on a and kind of bring back Davis or McGee Stafford on a prorated salary, kind of similar to what they did with Lexi Brown last season. Remember how they were kind of like waiting for the earliest possible opportunity to have the cap space to sign uh, Brown. They would have to wait at least 10 days before re-signing that player, though, because there's like a rule that says you you have to wait at least 10 days to re-sign a player. Um, they're all these little... So, so they don't have quite enough to start the season with them, but once the proration kicks in, they'd be able to afford them is what you're saying. As I understand it, yes. So we could theoretically see like either Gunderzerk or Doyle or Smalls make the opening day roster and then get cut when Julie Alleman shows up because that would kind of defeat the purpose, uh, uh, defeat the need for a, another guard there and then kind of get replaced by Davis or, or another wing there. It, it just It's not going to matter too much in the long run, I don't think, but if we're playing scenarios and we're kind of, you know, <laughs> hair-splitting these, uh, these, these contracts, I think it is an important thing to, to bring up. So thank you, Richard, as always, for uh, shedding some light on the murky CBA. 
Well, before we wrap up here and get to kind of strengths and weaknesses, I did want to just talk about this fourth big spot. How did you feel about Ruthie's second season and her playing kind of more minutes upcoming this season as, as kind of the sure thing fourth big with a stew gone? Yeah, so, you know, Ruthie Hebert was kind of pressed into action early last season when when Parker and Dolson were both injured. And I think she performed better than expected. You know, I think she showed some flashes on defense that I wasn't really sure she had. She's got really quick hands, actually. She's not much of a defensive playmaker in that, you know, she's going to block a lot of shots or take a lot of charges, which is kind of important for a big. But she did so. She did show some good activity on the defensive end. And then, of course, you know, she showed her usual uh, pick-and-roll finishing excellence out there. What I am concerned about is that this is basically the player who you're expecting Ruthie Haber to be for the rest of her career. Like, I'm still not sure if she has a ceiling beyond that. And that's fine. I think Ruthie Hebert is a fine player. But going back to what you said earlier, she offensively, she kind of does need to be involved in the primary offensive action, which is going to be a pick and roll, right? In order to really make a difference on the floor, at least for her teammates. Otherwise, she's just she's going to be sitting in the paint or in the restricted area or in the dunker spot or somewhere in that area of the floor and kind of just be taking up space out there. Meanwhile, on defense, she's not going to be blocking a ton of shots. She's probably not going to be doing too much switching out there. So she's at best probably just going to be like a, like a neutral a net neutral out there. From an efficiency standpoint, points per possession, uh, Ruthie Hebert was the third best player in rolls to the basket in the pick and roll. Would you like to guess the two players that were ahead of her? You're never going to get one of them. Well, that's good to know. Um, is Tierra McCowan one of them? Because she's got really strong pick and roll gravity. It's not Tierra McCowan, is it? It's not Tierra McCowan. Would you like me to tell you? Just, just tell me. It is uh, Brittany Griner and Rashonda Gray, the two players that were ahead of oh, Ruthie wow. Heber in rolls to the basket efficiency. Okay, I mean, I figured like I guess maybe Griner. That's that's maybe kind of a, a dull answer because, I mean, we're used to her posting up, but obviously she's going to be super efficient at basically anything she does. But Rashonda Gray, that's interesting. Okay, but to your but point, for- I mean, Hebert is just uh, an elite you know, part of her game and 81% or almost closer to 82% of her pick and rolls where she was in the 94th percentile overall, 82% of them were coming from rolls to the basket. You know, this is not a pop player and she, she does it better than just about anybody else in the league. She's just got such a great knack for moving without the basketball. You know, I mean, it's not like these, these pick and rolls, it's not like she's a bone crushing screen setter either. She's just got a really great feel on when to screen and when to roll and of course, you know, great hands and, and, and finishing ability as well. But my my concern is, you know, what is the ceiling? What is Ruthie Hebert providing on the floor that is forcing defenses to bust besides the pick and roll? Well, I mean, I think the pick and roll is... Or is that good enough? I, I think that one thing might be enough for kind of this role. Maybe if she can incrementally improve on the defensive end to the point where you feel like you're not getting killed out there. You know, she can just kind of hold her own. You know, okay. for a third big... Uh, again, you'd love to kind of have someone that, that gives you a little bit more space for the, the possessions that she's not involved in the offense. But, I mean, when you are scoring, you know, 1.3 points per possession per roll, like that is really, really impressive. And it's just— And maybe, and maybe you know, Stephen, maybe that's uh, maybe that's going to be more of a factor now that the floor is going to be better spaced. And that there's a backup point guard who can run a pick and roll. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, okay, so so let's, let's, let's reframe it this way. If you've got Hebert playing the five— Almonda Alman playing point guard and Emma Miesemann playing the four, pick and roll them to death. Like you're not stopping her with Ebert because the floor is just gonna be too well spaced. So okay, that's that's not something I considered pre- previously. So 
yeah, you know, maybe with some of these bench lineups, she could be a productive player. Yeah, you're right. So what do you see as kind of the um, the major strengths of this team here? Okay, uh, obviously they're going to have really strong passing, again, from several positions on the floor. Miesemann, I don't think, is quite as good of a passer as Stephanie Dolson is uh, from the front court, but she's still very well above average from there. Probably a, a, a yeah, plus passer for her position. A plus passer, maybe maybe different situationally, but you know, a plus passer for sure. And then, obviously, Parker and Vandersloot, two of the best to ever do it from their respective positions as, as well. Um, I think three-point shooting is going to be a plus more than it was last season. I think this team is going to get up a lot of three-pointers. Maybe not the most, like maybe not like Mystics-level three-pointers, but I do think the three-ball is going to be a, a significant strength of theirs. What else? Anything you, you have to add? Uh, I think they're going to still be great in transition. You know, passing floor balance, uh, I think you, you nailed those. I, you know, they're going to have multiple dribble penetrators on the floor pretty much at all times, uh, right. I think. But, you know, even without Diamond to Shields, I think this is going to be a pretty great transition team. They still have Copper. They still have Candace Parker, which that combo in 23 games together generated 14 Parker to Copper transition assists. So not even including any trips to the line or anything that started with Parker getting the board and, and somebody else touched the ball first, you know, before Copper finished it or, or, you know, Copper assisted to somebody else in transition. Like just that one connection, 14 in, in 23 games is, is really, really great. That's so pretty good, yeah. just having that duo is going to get you opportunities in the open court. I, I'm not sure really kind of what else, you know, the lineup versatility, you have offensive lineups and you have defensive lineups, I think. And, and, you know, you should, be able to play at least four out pretty much all the time. Um, but nothing else really kind of jumps out. But those strengths that they have should be, you know, considerable ones, I guess. Your cat sounds very unhappy. She's, Is that a cat? Yeah, it's my cat. She's <laughs> freaking out. So I did some digging and I found up an interesting statistic here or a couple statistics regarding the forcing turnovers. I think the the advantage of a DeShields copper wing combination, backcourt, whatever you want to call it, is that you do have the length and the defense and the potential turnover forcing ability. But, you know, a big part of transition play is forcing turnovers, right? Chicago actually ranked third in opposing turnovers percentage last season and in the playoffs. So is there one, my, I guess, two, two-parter here. One, is there any reason why they won't try to do this again? I don't think so. I think they're going to be good at forcing turnovers again. Um, two, Copper and DeShields lineups were actually worse at forcing, forcing turnovers, not significantly, like... When Copper and DeShields were on the floor, they forced a turnover on 18.1% of opposing possessions. The overall team was 18.8%, so it's not not that much worse. But it's not like there was like this significant defensive jump when you had this, let's be honest, poor offensive combination on the floor. Um, Ruthie Hebert actually led the team in forcing 21.3% turnovers, on, or, or forcing turnovers, rather, on 21.3% of opponent's possessions, 16.8% off. Is this anything? I'm not sure because it's a very, it's it's a slightly small small sample size. Um, like her minutes kind of fell off a cliff later into the season. And as a rookie, she was not effective at all in forcing turnovers. So that may be, that may be nothing. Could, could what, what do you think noise, about yeah. that? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I lean noise, but would be happy to be proven wrong. I'll say that. I agree. The first thing I thought was, wow, that's that's kind of weird. I, I don't remember that. But um, my, my point being, I think they're still going to be good at forcing turnovers uh, despite the personnel change. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, big concerns or weaknesses for this team? Um, like I said earlier, perimeter defense. Who's their best perimeter defense? It's got to be Kalia Kappa right now, right? 
I mean, they still have an extra wing spot to fill, but I think Copper is far and away a better defender than Ellie Quigley is. Even so, she's decent, but I wouldn't consider her to be a stopper, especially when she's exerting so much energy on the offensive end. In fact, I might I might make this even more general and just say lack of perimeter size or physicality. Would you agree? I would agree, yeah. Especially okay. from, you know, the the one and the two, but, you know, with so much of that kind of being put on Copper's shoulders, then then yeah, for sure. It's 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 like I said with uh, with Jewel Lloyd and the Seattle Storm, why I liked the Brian January signing so much for Seattle, it's that Jewel Lloyd doesn't need to exert so much energy on, on defense. Um, I think this team has a lot of players it relies on for a championship contender, like that they're not really relying on one superstar, which I think is good, uh, you know, when, when the games actually come around as much as other teams. Um, but I think they are, you know, one major absence from any of their top four could be pretty disastrous. Like they have no yeah. replaceability for Quigley or Copper or Parker, you know, Vandersloot, you know, maybe the most so with Alamon, but you really don't want to kind of take that chance and, and see what it looks like. Wing depth, of course, you know, I, I felt so much better about the depth of this team when I thought Bradford would be available to play. Uh, they, they pretty much don't have a backup wing on, on the team right now, um, but they're bringing in a lot of options and maybe one of them will be able to stick and, and contribute. Um, they were, uh, you know, I, I wonder if this team will be able to defend like we talked about before. They were in the bottom four in terms of allowing just a ton of transition frequency on defense, giving up a lot of opportunities. I think with more offensive-minded personnel this year and perhaps less defensive-minded personnel, you know, with Misaman and Aleman coming in, more Ruthie instead of a stew. Uh, th- this team could turn it over a lot. Do you think turnovers could be kind of an issue for this team or no? Oh, definitely, definitely. So those, those are kind of the big ones for me. Perimeter defense, turnovers, um, you know, allowing a ton of transition opportunity because of those turnovers and, and just a, a general lack of, you know, defensive skill and then, you know, kind of the, the depth part of it all. How about defensive rebounding? Because, like, there were a lousy defensive t- rebounding team last year. I'm not sure if they got much, but I think Miesemann is a slightly better defensive rebounder than Stephanie Dolson is, and maybe more Ruthie minutes over over a Stu Fall would be better, but I don't think they're going to be totally controlling the glass. No, I and I think even Copper I look at as more of like a, an offensive rebounder than a defensive sure. rebounder. Right. You know, right. I don't think of their their two starting guards as kind of huge defensive rebounding you know probably Vandersloot a little bit more than Quigley but you know those players don't have great size for their position so yeah I could see them being you know I don't expect them to be bottom four but they could be like middle of the pack probably okay and then the last one I have is just just the age of their star players um maybe maybe age is is kind of a crude way of saying it we spent so much time on this episode talking about you know what was the difference between the regular season and the and the postseason well they finally unleashed their starters and their their best players in the postseason is that going to be a thing again? Obviously, Allie Quigley one year older, Kenneth Parker one year older, Courtney Vanessa one year older. Ezra Stevens, it would be totally awesome if she was a 30-minute-per-game player, but I don't think she is right now. Um, I think we could be looking at some more load management for some of these players, especially if, I mean, they're pretty much boxed in as far as their goal for this season, right? It's championship or bust, because we don't know what the heck's going to happen next offseason. Um, so with that in mind... A, at least a regular season weakness could be just not being able to play their best players enough minutes. I don't know if you consider that to be a weakness or not, or if that's, or if I'm overstating this, but I could see it being an issue again. 
That makes sense. Yeah, I, I hadn't considered that part of it too much. But, you know, I think they're in a better spot with that than they were last year, you know, bringing in Alan Definitely. and Misa Min, So You know, not knock on wood, you know, obviously a, a major, part of la- major part of last year was untimely injuries. And I do think that this is going to be a really good team again. I think these strengths are going to far outweigh weaknesses. And I think they're going to be like a, a top three, top four team again. Or not again. <laughs> I think they're going to be a top three, top four team in the regular season as well as in the playoffs. It's funny to consider like the champion was not in it's the so top. weird yeah, yeah. yeah very very unusual for the league um but cool anything else should we wrap up let's wrap it up all right thank you all so much for listening if you want to support the show you can follow rate and review on apple spotify and google podcasts you can follow the show on twitter at double down wmba you can follow eric on twitter at nemchak e you can follow myself at trinkwald and we will hopefully be back next week with another team outlook All right. Take care, everyone.